you're back. Excellent. I'm just going to assume that you know this is Buzzcocks Part 2 and that you've already listened to Part 1. That way, I don't have to tell you to jump back an episode and listen to that. It also means I've already explained the history of temporary fandoms, the Facebook group, then podcast that listens to and talks about entire discographies. But maybe you need reminding that the group lives at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans, or that the show is best listened to with a Mixcloud subscription, because entertaining though our conversations are, they're vastly elevated when heard with the tunes under discussion. But what you really want to hear is more of Paul Hanley and John Henderson reminiscing about some great records. So join us as we pick up where we left off with the reunion of Manchester's Buzzcocks. Hello there, welcome to Temporary Fandoms, part two of Buzzcocks. Um, if this is the first one you're listening to, then you're listening to the wrong one. Uh, go back to the other one. Um, the albums are better, the music's better, and also we do all the introductions properly. Um, still with us, well, there's myself, there's Ewan, hello. I'm me, Nick. There's Nick. And also still with us are uh, Head of Tiny Global Productions, um, a, a fantastic uh, record label with some amazing uh, bands on there, which we discussed or mentioned in the in the previous one. John Henderson, welcome back, John. Thank you. And well, I mean, almost a, almost a, a podcast regular now. I mean, you, you've got you, you've got he's got his own podcast. Oh, brother, he's been on several of ours. Paul Hanley. Good evening. Right, we're going to get started. I'm also conscious of of times um, when we record these things. We have deadlines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so, without any further ado, we're going to get back into some more album introductions. And if you're listening to it via our exclusive on the Mixcloud, there's some songs to listen to as well. And we will be back in a bit. So we finished the first chapter of the Buzzcock story with their split in 1981, but here we are with a whole other episode with six subsequent albums to listen to. The received knowledge on this sort of thing is that none of them are likely to be as good as that first incarnation, but it's still a solid run of albums, the first of which was Trade Test Transmissions in 1993. The 80s were not enormously kind on the former Buzzcocks, although Shelley's solo work is worth exploring. Diggle was performing as Flag of Convenience, who were occasionally billed as Buzzcocks FOC, despite Diggle being the only original member, and the success of these shows somehow led to a reconciliation between Shelley and Diggle. They started gigging together as Buzzcocks, and in 1991 a four-song EP followed. Another two years had passed before we heard a new Buzzcocks album, though. And how was it? Whilst it's not a patch on any of their earlier albums, it's clear that they remain powerful songwriters. What makes it a curiosity is that they often sound a lot more like the bands they influenced than themselves. Diggle's Isolation, for example, sounds like Husker Du, and there seems to have been an effort to produce a bigger, more powerful sound with the fuzzy guitar sounds popular in early 90s indie rock. Shelley's voice remains unique though, as can be heard on tracks like Smile and Last to Know. Other standout tracks are Palm of Your Hand and Crystal Night, an unusually political number by Shelley alluding to that awful prelude to the Holocaust, Kristallnacht. If you squint your ears, you can hear fresher versions performed by the original band, but somehow, this older incarnation lacks the vigour they're obviously striving for. And let's face it, if you went to see the Buzzcocks in 93, you probably wanted to hear singles going steady, but at least these songs wouldn't have sounded awful in amongst the classics, just so long as, you know, they still play Love You More.
The disappointing commercial reaction to trade test transmissions led Buzzcocks to seek a better label, and they wound up signing to Miles Copeland's IRS Records, who had licensed the United Artists catalogue for the USA. The band recorded the album at Fantasy Studios in San Francisco, and clearly they were aiming for the punk pop market that had developed in the wake of Green Day's Dookie, even using the same engineer to produce this. Whether that was a mistake or not is debatable. The album is probably a bit more consistent than TTT, though the vocals seem oddly buried in the mix for the most part. And the presumably bigger recording budget does seem to work. These songs sound a lot more confident than those on the preceding album. The album opener, totally from the start, is an absolute classic that hones the band's signature punky enthusiasm to its finest point yet. And while there's nothing on all set that pushes in a new direction, its high points are many. On the version of the album most people know, different countries had slightly different track releases, Diggle's written two great songs, What Am I Supposed To Do and Playing For Time, and one kind of dud, Back With You, which tries to go for an epic album closer and falls a bit flat. Shelley's songs, well, they're more of a mixed bag. At their best, they're pretty good. Pariah sounds like something from another music in a different kitchen. And if you play that back to back with Late for the Train, you'll know precisely why. Kiss and Tell, Point of No Return are the highlights. Shame though, right after the album's release and in the midst of the band's biggest American promotional campaign, the label collapsed, was absorbed into EMI, and that was that. Another bust for the band. What happened to Buzzcock's album titles? They used to be amazing at it, but here they are, at the close of the century with the unimaginatively named Modern. That's a pretty sloppy sleeve too, but what lies within? Somewhat surprisingly, it opens with a burst of electronic noise that harks back more to Shelley's solo work, and this embrace of electronica seems to bring them more in line with the post-punk sounds they may have made if they'd stayed together through the early 80s. And perhaps it's modern in this sense. Crucially though, it's actually pretty good. Okay, I've adjusted my expectations for Buzzcocks albums by 1999, but Album Open A Soul On A Rock is a pretty hooky tune. Listen out for the Bowie-esque phone too, and Choices is another standout track, with some unexpected vocal manipulation that actually works. There's really more to like on this late era Buzzcocks album than you might expect, and I suspect probably people are going to say the same about the other albums as well. It would be stronger without Diggle songs, which seldom have the same spark as Shelley's, but for some reason, I always feel a little mean pointing it out. Previously on Temporary Fandoms, um, Paul Hanley was telling us about how, um, well, Paul and John were telling us about how um, Buzzcock split and they were sort of got back together. Um, Paul, why did they get back together and was this for the next album? No, I don't, I don't think there was any, any thoughts of doing more records when they got back together. I think they got offered a fairly decent amount of money to reform and play some gigs in America and the UK and Japan and wherever. And it suited, it just so happened that it suited all four of them at the same time, I think. Um, John Marr had moved, he was, he's doing, he does, um, or he did, uh, classic uh, VWs and suit them up and race them and uh, Volkswagen racing and drag racing and things. Uh, he uh, By that stage, but I think it, there was just a 
period of time where it suited him to get back with the band. And that was the same for them all. I think, I think Diggle really wanted to get the band back together. Um, Steve Garvey was living in America as a, and working as a carpenter. And again, I think it suited him to get back together. So the, the big impetus was to get back and do some gigs. I don't think anybody at that point was thinking about making records. I think it was like four years after the reform before they actually made a record, I think, or three years maybe. Yeah, and that would that would be trade t- test transmission in... Oy. Yeah, they did. Ninety-three. They did an EP called "Alive Tonight" slightly before that, with Steve Garvey still on board. And very sadly, Steve Garvey got pretty ill. He got uh, uh, cancer and had to drop out. So, that's, which is the only reason I think he didn't carry on. And John Mar- John Mar was only ever going to do the tour, so he did that and he left. And then they got um, Mike Joyce in from the Smiths, and they did this EP "Alive Tonight." And they did an album worth of demos. And then, as I say, Steve Garvey got ill very sadly. So he had to leave. And then so then they got a new bass player in called um, Tony Barber. And then Mike Joyce left. They got John Marim to complete a tour because they didn't have time to teach anybody else the songs. And then they got uh, Phil Barker in to play drums, which is the lineup that recorded Trace Transformations. And... I feel very sorry for those two, uh, Tony Barber and Phil Barker. They were the backbone of the band for a long time, and they played on more albums than John Marr and Steve Garvey ever did. But they get kind of right, written out of history, really. So when they did Buscock's Back to Front in 2012, where they did a set with the current lineup, a set with the classic lineup, and then a set with Howdy Voto, they, they were kind of they kind of airbrushed out of history, which is really unfair. And, and they weren't invited to play at the memorial gig at the free trade hall but i mean they kept the band going for a long time so that, that's the lineup that did taste as trades test and, and this is this is 93 which is it's a weird i mean it's, it's worth taking a second just to talk about the musical layout at the time we're in 93 grunge has been taking over on one side of the atlantic Britpop's just about um to start taking over on the other side of the atlantic and here we've got this by now legacy pop punk act coming back I mean, how were they? How was this received? How was this album, um, John? I mean, was it was it a, a glorious return to form, or how was it looked at indifferently? Um, it was on Caroline in America, which is a big indie, so it didn't have uh, the distribution or promotion that the first, well, the, actually the third album had had. Uh, but there was an entire generation of people like me who never could see the Buzzcocks play during the original era because we were too young to get into clubs. So. I saw them on that tour and uh, they weren't playing any new songs yet. It was all stuff from the first three albums and those singles. And uh, there were probably 1,200 people there, which was bigger than shows they'd played before in America. And um, I think it was received pretty well by fans. I think it's a pretty good record. It's probably the weakest of the first four, if you look at it that way. Um, But I also think it's probably the last substantially great one. Okay. Okay. So, the, uh, quick question. I mean, you said a lot of people are too young to get into clubs, and we asked, we've asked previous guests this before. Um, were a lot of these gigs in basically over twenty-one venues in the any US? place that served liquor in the U.S.? You had to be twenty-one to get in. So, yeah, and unless you were a big enough band to play, like you know, an old theater hall kind of place with three thousand people, you you couldn't get in. I I mean. I know, I know that uh, 
that Paul wasn't there, but I met uh, Steve and Mark Riley and Marky Smith, you know, and I was 15 years old waiting outside Tuts in Chicago just to be able to say hi to him because I could never get in the show. I mean, I was six years too young. I was, I was, I, I I think- was too young to go on that tour. Well, that'll tell you. Oh yeah, but but that's but that's always the weird thing. I mean, I I mean technically you have to be you had to be eighteen to get into, but you know in the UK I mean, most of us were going to gigs at fifteen or whatever because particularly if you looked slightly tall. Um, so I the idea of not being able to see all the bands I saw in my later teens until I was early twenties just that was really hard. You were eighteen though in America, weren't you? It wasn't you. It wasn't just you look eighteen or you look twenty one. You had to prove you. Were you had to prove you had to show ID and and. And the reason, you know, I don't think that anybody would have cared except that the the police would raid places occasionally. And if you got caught with people underage, that might be the end of your your bar or your club because the fines were ex- just extortionate. It just seems it seems a massive shame. There's there's particularly how this kind of music generally is people in their late teens who are discovering new energetic cool stuff and driving the the, the the record sales maybe and they're the very people who can't go to see them live um that was very true at the time yeah. i mean you know when i got into punk rock and all that stuff i was you know 13 or 14 so 78 79 when you could start getting stuff but I, to be honest i think most of the people that bought those records and went to see those bands were quite a lot older than i was so you know it was a sort of a lonely existence musically uh, for quite a number of years. And which is why, you know, I knew, I knew, I just found out the other day, actually, that John Langford from the Mekon's wife uh, was one of the other six kids out there waiting to meet the fall before Tuts. And, and she had a, she had a photograph, wow. she had a photograph with, with us in it. And I didn't meet her for know, 15 years after that. It was like, Oh my God, you were one of those, you know, kids I was talking to. Yeah. And you're in, and you and a photo exists of you both in that photo. Oh, that's wow. amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, it's a completely different experience because I, when I started going to see Buscox, I was fourteen, and I was going to I was going to see the Fall at fourteen. So I was going to see Buscox at the Apollo. You were in the Fall at uh, fourteen, yeah, nearly, but uh, <laughs> no, so I was going to well, I, I had to, nightclubs. I was going to the factory. The Russell Club in Manchester at fourteen to go and see bands, and I was six yeah. foot tall. I was yeah. so. That was all I needed. That was I didn't need. Yeah. You know, if they'd have ID'd me, there was no way. So it, it must have made for a completely different experience for the American, for an American rock fan and a, and a, and a British rock fan. It must have been an entirely different experience. You've got because you've got. I mean, that's seven years. Seven. Yeah. And you think about all the festivals. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people in the UK, their first music festival and booze fueled music music festival. Yeah. There may be sixteen, seventeen sometimes 15, sometimes 18, but you're still, it's a teenage rite of passage almost. Yeah. Go and do you can drink thing. there when you're 16 now, or was that the age back then? Well, no, it's like no, you it was always 18, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they never checked. And, you know, yeah. I mean, I the first, the, one of the first ven- sort of indie clubs I used to go to, and I think the first band I saw there was the Sand Kings. <laughs> um, I was, well, I mean, my I, I was spotted in the street with my school uniform by the proprietor yeah. who I try, I tried to hide. He's went, all right, you and, and then I saw him the next day and he, he served me a pint of cider and black because I was six foot, six foot two tall with long it's hair. It's much more civilized. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I've almost forgotten what we were talking no, about. Oh, yes. 
<laughs> Trade test transmission. Um, Nick, um, how how does this fit for you in that sort of early nineties? I mean, for me, this sounds like an anomaly, as in it just doesn't seem to fit with everything else that's going on at the time. But as John said, it's still a pretty good album. It's it a pretty good comeback. Yeah. It's a pretty successful comeback, and it it leans into. Uh, and there is an argument to say it's like the fourth Buscox album. I mean, big, it's got a Malcolm Garrett sleeve, which is very important. Mm. Because, they did, as I say, they did this Alive Tonight EP, and it was almost as jarring. It didn't have the Buscox logo on it, and it was almost as jarring not to see it being by the sleeve being by Malcolm Garrett as it was it's to see that it wasn't John Marr on the drums. It was, it was like, this isn't quite correct, this. But by the time they did Trade Shots Missions, it's got a Malcolm Garrett sleeve and I really clearly identify a Malcolm Garrett Buzzcock sleeve. That kind of kept, you know, care and attention that he, all the E could do, really. So it felt like a proper Buzzcock album. Right. And it, it, okay. it works. Well if, this, well, if this is the last proper Buzzcock album, and I'm very conscious of, of, of time here um, because I know that you've got to get off at some point. I want to make sure I really right. touch upon the other albums. The next album, yeah, yeah. which is all set in what, 1996, mm. um, yeah. which feels. Very weird for me because in my head they were wrapped up in the whole Cool Britannia thing that was going on at the time in, in, in terms of oh Buzzcocks is his band, but sa- sound it's almost like they're being that this was their Green Day album and they're being packaged into the whole pop punk thing, um, and this is when the albums start to just drop a little for me. Oh, uh, John, am I wrong here in thinking that this was a sort of the post Green Day? publicity of of, of the, the, that new wave of pop punk pop punk i guess um, yeah i mean it was in that time and and i remember being i remember hearing that you if you bought the japanese version of the cd you got two extra tracks and so i tracked that down and bought it and um it was i, I was immediately disappointed i mean there's a couple of you know okay songs on there but it was a it was a big letdown and uh um you know, I don't think they really re- recovered from it. Actually, I mean, it, from here on out, it gets a slightly more depressing with each a- album, with a few exceptions. But uh, I think I don't, I don't know. Sorry, Paul. So I, I think they really struggled here between uh, let's make a, a, an album that sounds exactly like the Buscocks and let's make something that doesn't sound quite the same. I think they they couldn't really quite decide which way to go, really. Because so mm. you get things that have got keyboards on and drum machines, and then you get, um, I can't remember what the name of the song is now, there's one song which is, it's basically uh, moving away from the pulse, but yeah, Pariah, I think it is, uh, and mm. it's basically moving away from the pulse. We've got the same drum beat on it, it, it to a pointless degree, really. It's like a parody of themselves. So they were, I think they were, they were really struggling whether to move up Broaden the sound of Buscocks or sound like Buscocks. I don't think they could win either way, really. I don't think anybody happy either way, which is a real well, shame, really. Well, shall we talk about these two albums together? Because we've got All Set and then Modern yeah. that comes afterwards. There's only three years apart. Yeah. For me, I couldn't really draw a line between the two of them. I mean, granted, this second half of the discography, I, I did my second listen to this morning with a bit of a hangover, but I was finding it very difficult to go, this is the same band. Yeah. And I started to think, what other bands had been around for so long that were still doing good stuff in the late 90s? Obviously, you know, you've got you've got your Falls and your Susie and the Banshees who are still um, releasing things 20-odd years later. But you also had a lot of bands who had sort of just fallen by the wayside. So on one hand, I was like, kudos for them 
coming back and doing it. But I don't know what the point was, particularly of these two albums, like All Rise and Modern. Um, anybody. Anybody. I think that they were a touring band at this point, and I think that yeah. having a new record out gave them an excuse to tour, and they usually include I, – I, I saw them several times you know, around that period, and a fifth of the set would be – you know, reunion, post-reunion sure. era stuff, and the rest of it would be the hits. And I think that was just the, the catch that they could get a, at least in America, they could get a promoter to put on a tour and they've got a new album. Yeah. And I think each of those records more or less was on a different label too, at least yeah. in America. You know, they, was putting the record out a necessary step in order to get the tour? Because, I mean, if I was going to see the Buzzcocks in 1999, I wouldn't even care that they had a new album. I'd be going to see them because they're a legacy uh, act. But, but but would you say that that legacy, I mean, now, I mean, every band will reform and do a tour, yeah. whether or not they're releasing an album or, or, or not. I think Pixies still churning out albums, although I've stopped listening to the albums, but I'll still go and see them because of all the the, the, the legacy songs from my you know when I was younger. I, I'm not sure there were a lot of bands doing that. In the '90s, sort of, you know, reforming well, I guess for the what big I was curious money about, tour. Yeah, if the if if it was, you know, the only way they could tour was to release an album, and is that that the motive for doing the album at all? Well, an album album still existed. Yeah, it was, <laughs> well, yeah, pre, yeah, it was pre Napster and pre Spotify. So, like the 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 idea yeah, guess, there was an album to promote. It's, I think I think there comes a point where, for your own sanity, you have to record something new, don't you? I think if you're if you're Buzzcocks, I think you know it becomes mm. a bit. You can't. There's only so many times you can do it, isn't there? Where you record, you, where you go round. I mean, as I say, you would go absolutely potty just playing that. I mean, a lot of bands. You know, you, you become cabaret at some point, don't you? If you're not yeah. doing new albums, you become a cabaret band, which which I'm not knocking. I don't. I'm not. I have no problem with the Hollies. Go or you know, the two of the guys from the Hollies still going out with the Hollies and playing the hits of the Hollies. You know, if you know, it's better. As Pete Shelley always said, it's better than working in Barclays Bank. You know, and I have no problem <laughs> with that. Except, you know, er, early in this conversation, Paul mentioned, uh, you know, people like Elton John who, who, and the bravery they had doing, doing uh, you know, sort of being who they were publicly at a time when that wasn't super acceptable. And, I, and at the immediate time that I thought that, I, I, it reminded me of the fact that Elton John did sing on a charity version of Ever Fallen in Love with a bunch of other yeah. people. Yeah, look it up. Um, uh, a number of really big names on there. And then you had a band like Fine Young Cannibals and they did a, a cover of another Pete Shelley song. And uh, there've been a number of covers and the same, the same Pete Shelley song. Was it the same? Yeah, it was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Very different version. Yeah. Never fallen, yeah in never fallen in love. And you know, he had just to be making money, but I'll tell you that recently I met this Irish fellow who's, I won't say who, but he's deeply involved with the music scene and, and, um, had a very, very anti-Steve Diggle position and and said that that for the last, oh, you know, at least 10 or 15 years that the Buzzcocks toured before Pete died, um, you know, there were a lot of contracts in place where, you know, Steve Diggle was allowed to play, to have the set be 40% of his songs. And that he knew mm -hmm. that the Buzzcocks was over when the last time he saw him play, Steve Diggle had managed to up that to 60%. Oh, Jesus. You know, and oh. he said, and Pete just didn't really, he's just, you know, he, he talked to Pete afterwards and Pete was just like, yeah, you know, didn't care. He moved to Estonia, uh, you know, had a wife there. And 
I don't know why he kept doing it. You know, I, I just, I, Pete, anyway, Steve, Steve, I have a pretty good idea. I talked, to, <laughs> I talked to John Marr about that and he said, Pete was happy. He loved playing live and he loved the fact that people loved his songs. So, as I say, he could go out, a, a nice hotel, a nice transport to the gigs, some, a nice meal after it, play songs to people who, that people loved. That was, that, was, that was what he wanted, you know, that was great for him and he was happy not playing with Buscocks and he was happy playing with Buscocks. I think the fact that he could do Buscocks for six months of the year made his life away from it better and the fact that he could get away from it made his time with Buscocks better. I think, and I I have absolutely no problem with that whatsoever. What I, did, I but I think Steve Diggle's mindset. Steve Diggle still thinks probably still well probably even more now. Steve Diggle thinks Buscocks are a, are a, not a legacy act. They are a ongoing band with something to say. Unfortunately, he's not always had that much to say. To be honest, you know. Um, and I, 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 again, I, it's very easy to sneer at Steve Diggle, but you know I think Buscocks wouldn't exist without his drive. I don't think, or would, for for the yeah. last whatever many years, I don't think they'd have existed unless he was saying to Pete Shelley, "You need to." People love Buscocks. You need to be out there. I mean, that's I, you know I can only applaud him for that. That he got Pete Shelley out in front of an audience of people who loved him. If nothing else, having said yeah. that, there comes a point that of there came a point in every Buscocks gig where I thought, for fuck's sake, can I hear some more Pete Shelley? Because the, you used to get to the point, and, and I've sort of seen them a number of times because I still love them, but you, you'd get to the 15th minute of harmony in my head and you'd think, somebody right here has got the wrong idea about what people love about Buscocks, and and I know and I know who it is. Um, I, I, I couldn't have put that better myself. I think that's really true, and I guess... I guess the only thing that disturbs me about it is the fact that um, most people I know that saw the Buscocks shortly before Pete died felt that he didn't seem very happy. And, you know, I just kind of wonder what would have happened if he'd been able to just sit back and relax and not have to worry well, about it. Well, I'm going to do that annoying thing of jumping in and moving us yeah. on because we're, we're starting to jump ahead a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've, had, we've had a decent album. And two water tready albums, and we're gonna. Well, you, dear listener, are now going to be taking through the the final three yep. albums of Buzzcocks, and um, I quite like the next one. We'll be back in a bit. Their self-titled album in uh, two thousand and three was their shortest album ever, just under thirty-five minutes, and probably just the, the pure punkiest. I mean, there's not, annoyingly, a lot of positive things to say about this one. Lots of punk energy, lots of adrenaline, very consistent, but that's about it. A couple of good songs, um, the two singles, Shelley's Jerk and Diggle's Six City Sometimes. But even allowing for differences in production, only one song comes close compositionally to anything on the first three albums. And that's the track Stars, which itself is a reworked version of the Shelley Devoto tune Till the stars in his eyes are dead from their album Buzzkunst. Keep On is a good example of the problem here. It's simply something that would have been an instrumental section from another music in a different kitchen, but repeated ad infinitum with only the slightest hint of a chorus 
floundering for a way to end. You can't fade out on a punk track. I mean, it just never works. Songs such as Friends and Driving You Insane make it obvious that this was an attempt to make a purely punk album without the inventiveness that the band had become known for, and both tracks fail. And the oddest moment is a revisiting of Leicester Sands, a song on the Time's Up album of the initial 1976 demos for the band. It was never a great song, and this version, 27 years later, does nothing to redeem it. Hi there, John Henderson again, and I'm here to discuss Buzzcock's penultimate album, Flat Pack Philosophy, which was released by Cooking Vinyl back in 2006. Uh, they'd spent a long time recording it, and um, unfortunately, I don't think the results are anything incredibly special. It's it's definitely uh, adherent to the Buzzcock's formula of, of pop punk. Uh, typically, Pete Shelley's songs are a little bit better than Steve Diggle's, uh, and the, the split's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70-30 in favor of Pete Shelley in terms of songwriting. Um, it's not by any stretch of the imagination a bad record. If you like this sort of thing, you'll like this record a lot, and I can definitely tout this above uh, what most of the bands that, that follow the Buzzcocks template have ever achieved. But um, it feels like they were running out of ideas. It took them, uh, as I said, I think two years to record the album off and on. And um, after this, they took a very long eight-year break, I believe, before coming back with their last album, The Way. Uh, in any case, uh, check it out, enjoy it, and enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Bye. The Way, Buscock's final album with Pete Shelley, was released in 2014, a full eight years after Flat Pack Philosophy. It was the first to showcase a new rhythm section of Danny Ferrant on drums, who joined in 2006, and Chris Remington on bass, who joined in 2008, both of whom had played many tours in the meantime. Despite this long delay and the significant overhaul in lineup, it was business as usual and remained rooted in the classic Buscock sound, although there were some exceptions. People are strange machines sees Diggles indulging in his not unfamiliar Paul Wellen impression, while elsewhere, ironically, due to the inevitable effects of ageing on his voice, Shelley sounds almost like Diggle himself, particularly on Keep On Believing. There are nods to Low Era Bowie, and on Diggle's third dimension even had diversion into garage rock. It's admirable that Buscock refused to become heritage act and kept releasing new albums, albeit sporadically, but the overall takeaway from The Way was genuine puzzlement where Buzzcocks could go next. With a beloved back catalogue and a sonic template that was both brilliantly elegant and somewhat limiting, it's difficult to see how their next release could more successfully strike a balance between innovation and familiarity. Tragically, we'll never know if they could have pulled it off. Hello there, welcome back to the final uh, three albums chat of Buzzcock's career. I'm um, going to keep this very brief because Paul has to go because we've taken up a lot of his time and I'm very grateful. I mean, John might have to go as well, but he hasn't told me <laughs> he has to go. So we're going to go that room. All right. So um, we're moving into the, well, the eponymous titled al uh, album, 
which was in 2003. 2003. Um, it, this is a pretty short, punky, punchy nice little album i mean it's it sounds like a collection of b-sides a bit to me but for me like we talked about how uh, uh trade test transmission was the last properly good one this was an all right album or am i on my own here so two of the songs i like best it's interesting to point out uh one is lester sands which yeah, had been yeah. around that song had been around since before the first buzzcocks album Oh, um, wow. that's on time's up, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's on time. Knew, a, time's knew, up, yeah. yeah. And then the the other song that I really like on it is uh, I don't get the exact name. Not sixteen yet, which came before sixteen, and then sixteen again. Is it is it is it stars? <laughs> stars, the other devo, the other devo co-write oh, right. was on the 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 Buzz Kunst album, which was a collaboration between Pete Shelley and Howard Devoto. Uh, that's a pretty good record, actually, and that was a song that. I think Howard wrote Howard Devoto wrote the lyrics to. To me, those are two of the better songs on the record, and they were taken from earlier times. So, if you remove those, I kind of think we're in the same zone as the last two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe. I like it's short. It's a short album. <laughs> That's and the best you got to say punch- about it. I think. Well, Jerks, I mean, let's be honest. There's, a couple of there's good not a lot of good stuff to say about a lot of these albums. So like, we can just we can we can talk about anything you want right now. Because well, I, was, the I was genuinely themselves. puzzled by the by the presence of Lester Sands on there. I, yeah. But I didn't realize maybe that it had never been on an album before, and that was why that was the justification for it. I just hadn't thought because all I was thought was, why is that there? Why, why are they doing that? It, and it sounded. Well, you know, it's, it's a good... jerk on there, which is the first song on the album, which has yeah. got a. It starts with a with a complete reference to t- yeah, you tear me up, which is like that, that drum beat, that sort of which John Marr invented and then became massive amongst the the D. What's it called? D punk is it? That drum beat that was massive amongst punk bands later on, and it it's like self referential, which I think a bit of this album is really. I think this album's like saying, oh, by the way, we're Buscocks, you know. Yeah. We've got some history here, you know. It does seem to be that sort of harking back. Yeah. It's it's almost like a like when I said it sounded like a collection of B-sides, it did sound like this sort of oh this is some stuff we used to do. Yeah. Rather than that the the last albums which I've already forgotten. The ones we talked about earlier on, all set and modern. Modern and also yeah. <laughs> water tready. Um, although I, I do think I, this, I think that's a bit unfair on those. Last... So I think there's some I think on both of those they they try and break out of the formula a bit. You know, there's there's a lot of there's some synthy bits and some drum drum machiney bits, which whether they worked or not is a different argument. But they, I think at that point they were still trying to push the envelope. Whereas once you get back to this eponymous and from here on in, they know what Buscock. You know, they know that they're not going to get away from what Buscocks are. I don't think so. They they they're now saying, oh, "All right, so we're Buscocks." But by the way, Buscocks are pretty bloody good, and this is what we can do. I think. Yeah. It has a lot more passion than the last two, for sure. Yeah. Regardless of what you think of the songs, and it's it is short, and the songs tend to be a bit shorter. And um, you know, I think that I think the energy behind it makes up for it a lot. It's probably my favorite after uh, of all the Buscox albums after Trade Trans Trade yeah. Trade Test I'm, I'm, Transmissions. So. Do we think, or do, do you? I think anyway. Um, there seemed to be this thing, sort of at the end of the by the end of the nineties, that a lot of sort of legacy artists. I'm thinking also people like Terry Hall had suddenly got respect again, and were able to then go back to what made them them. Like there was, a, you know, people like Buzzcocks sort of were releasing stuff. 
the new stuff wasn't really getting like Terry Hall was doing some of his solo stuff as well in the 90s. And then by the end of it, maybe because it'd been this sort of Brit poppy thing and people would, were name checking their influences, etc., these bands started to come back in and be able to go, oh, yeah, well, we can just, we don't have to try and do other new stuff now. We're, we're still us. I think that there's a point at which a lot of artists uh, realize that they could keep trying to chase the relative hits and it's just not going to work and they quit caring about that. And sometimes the better artists find, find their true artistic selves again and, and make good records because they've just quit playing the game. Yeah, I mean, and when we did the the, the one on the, the fall, there was so actually there was a sort of there was some occasional lulls, and then all of a sudden there'd be there'd, after like two or three albums there'd be another album. So, oh well, no, this is back back to a a a best or, or you know what whatever. And I think when you, you I think you're you're right when you're talking about bands that sort of go it doesn't matter anymore. We don't need to have we don't need to have a big hit. We can just do what we want to do, and hopefully something good comes out of that. Um, so, eponymous flat pack philosophy, yeah. and the way. Well, I mean, let's let's just let's just cover the last two albums together, well, at least and then we've remembered how to do album titles because they were great at album titles early on, and then they've had a run of like all set modern buzzcocks. It's like the you know rubbish album yeah. titles. Yeah, I mean, flat pack philosophy. That's that's not so bad. That sounds well, like that sounds like a proper buzzcocks album. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Um, um, but was it a proper Postcox album, Paul? Was it a proper? Yes, I think it was. I think. Um, did the world need another Postcox album? I'm not so sure, to be honest. Well, I, 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 I feel really. I, it's ridiculous why I would feel sorry for Pete Shelley, but um, he was kind of trapped in a way with Buscox. I, I think it's a shame that well it's not a shame. I was so happy when the Buscox reformed because I loved them, but I don't think it did his songwriting any favours to be trapped within Buscox because the Buscox parameters are I think slightly narrow well fairly quite a lot narrower than say the clash you could have a clash single that was a waltz that had a piano on it. You couldn't have a Buscox single that was I mean, having said that, you know, Buscox pushed the envelope to, uh, early on. They had influences that you can't you can't hear um, Krautrock in the Sex Pistols or the Clash. Buscox had that. Buscox were uh, infinitely more original. I think they weren't a pub rock band in the way that the Clash and the Sex Pistols were when they started. But I think they set their parameters so perfectly early on that they struggled to get outside of it. And I think that's always been the case with Buscock. Certainly when they reformed, they struggled to know what to do, uh, how to move it, move move the uh, sound on. And I think it's a shame, really, because I think Pete Shelley is such a fantastic songwriter. It's a shame that he was trapped into the Buscock formula, which he created, you know. Yeah. But it, so- and, and, and these two albums, these two final albums, there was a big gap. Really wasn't it? I mean, putting yeah. them together was probably un- unfair of me. Flatback philosophy sort of fitted in with the eponymous, um, and then there was a gap, and then they sort of came back for a, a, a well, a, sadly, a final one. Yeah, um, twenty fourteen. Um, well, John, what, what's the what's the lineup at this point? I mean, I don't even know to be perfectly honest. I mean, Steve, Stephen, Pete, and whoever's playing with them i i mean that, that, that that's that so there was 
there was uh, two guys in them now who are still with Buscocks now. So uh, the new drummer took over from um, Phil, uh, and he's kind of taken the role on the Tony Barber. Tony Barber was uh, picking the sets a lot of the time, and he was producing the albums as well. So you know, you got, he was he was kind of motoring them along really. And the drummer now, whose name escapes me again, we're going to have to edit that in. But he's kind of taken that role. He took that role over, I think, and he was kind of motivating them to get them out there. So the way is like the last album with this final um, uh, rhythm section. So that was so Tony and Phil did like five albums, I think, with the band. But as I say, it was more than any other lineup yeah. ever did. And then, but sadly, not the albums that people care about. I think much. the thing is when no, you when you is, create just... a template as the Buzzcocks did, that it was just so beautifully done and precise and and encompassed a fair amount of of differences from song to song. Um, it's really hard to break out of that. And I don't. Mm-hmm. I and and you know Pete always wrote pretty great songs. I think if you strip down a lot of the songs from the last few Buzzcocks records to their essence, you know they're as pretty close to being as solid as a lot of the early stuff. But yeah, yeah. they're older guys, and and you know they don't have the energy and drive, and they try to do something different, and people expect expect the Buzzcocks as they yeah. as they knew. Yeah. And part of the Buzzcocks formula was youth. Yeah, and the, and, well, and, and that's the thing the I feel when of, I listen the to the feeling of youth. Yeah, when I listen to the newer albums, is a sort of like a lot of the time I try to think, would I like this if it was performed by the nineteen seventy nine version of Buzzcocks? And sometimes I think. Yeah, probably would, to be honest. It's just something not quite there. And and it's, yeah, I want the Buzzcocks to sound young. Yeah, well, they, I think they had yeah, something to true. prove, and, they, yeah. and they, they proved it. And then what do you do? It's a, it's a complicated problem. Pete Shelley had a, a pretty good career for two albums, and I think the third one sort of stiffed. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things. And he was always going to be Pete Shelley, the guy that wrote, you know, a ton of classic Buzzcocks songs that, have been covered by loads of people in lots of different styles and it always worked, but the public didn't allow him the same latitude with his songs, really. Okay. I mean, that's probably a good time to wrap up and, and, and you dear listener, you'll realize that this episode was shorter than episode one, but that's because episode one had so much more to talk about. Yeah. But it'll feel longer um, if you listen to the music. Well, yes, it's not as good. <laughs> Uh, well, do you know if we're picking two tracks from <laughs> yeah, true, picking true. two tracks from each album, you can get you can get two good tracks out yes, of each you album. You probably can. Um, so, um, please, if you like us, you know, think about subscribing on on Mixcloud. It does help support the artists. Uh, it's for the price of basically two ninety nine a month, depending on whether it's euros or pounds at exchange rates. Find out everything on infrequency.co.uk. Um, John. If you want to listen to John on any other other pods, there's the series on the four where John uh, contributes to episode one. John Henderson, thank you ever so much for your time. And, th- and also thanks and, to Paul, um, Paul Hanley because I've learned from this podcast that I should pretty much just agree with everything he says. And <laughs> I, I, th- well, I, I think me and you, I think me and you, John, could possibly have a longer conversation about a couple of things at some point. I think I think we might hit on some common ground. Uh, guest, guest for O Brother, guest, guest, a guest for the O Brother podcast, a guest for the O Brother. <laughs> hey, um, now you're talking. And, and Paul, um, last time you were on for a temporary fandoms pod, it was a two-parter where the first half was substantially better than the second half, which was love. 
Um, yeah. And now you're back. Next time when you come on, let's pick someone who has a, a career. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Who's that going to be? Who's that going to be then? There must be, there must be someone with a better second half. Well, well, we will leave that open to you, dear listener. Find us on the social media. Send us a message. Um, and Paul, also, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. And Nick. Thank you. Nick, see, see you later. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Good night. God bless. That was another fantastic episode. Thanks to our guests, fall drummer, author, and increasingly podcaster, Paul Hanley, and John Henderson of Tiny Global Productions, who put out records by Blue Orchids, Nightingales, The Bitter Springs, The Gist, John Langford, and many more. Check out their Bandcamp page at tinyglobalproductions.bandcamp.com. It really does feel like an honor to sit in on these conversations, and I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. Thank you also to my determined co-host Ewan for all his work bashing this podcast into shape and then draping Jonathan Fisher's superb theme tune all over it. That's it for Buzzcocks, but you'll find loads of other bands covered in the podcast archive at infrequency.co.uk where we put out three new shows every month. Keep coming back for more, you lucky sods. Until next time, I'm Nick Hilditch and I'm cracking up Can't Take the Strain from heaven to hell and back again.